Back in the 1960s, Kenny Gamble was working at Jefferson Hospital in Philadelphia, but his real passion was the music business. When I got off of work, I would go over to the Schubert Building, where most of the Philadelphia record companies and management companies were. And I'd sit there and wait downstairs for a guy named Jerry Ross, who had an office there and was collaborating on a few projects together. Jerry Ross was a songwriter, an A&R man, and mentor to Kenny. One day, Kenny gets off work at the hospital and walks into the Schubert building at 250 South Broad Street in Philadelphia and waits for the elevator. And uh, when I tried to catch the elevator, uh, Huff was in there. Huff, as in Leon Huff. And uh, it was funny because there wasn't that many African-Americans in this building at all. So when I seen Huff, I, it was it was a pleasure. I said, wow, I said, this guy's a black guy in here. You know? <laughs> so me and Huff talked about what our dreams and aspirations was, you know, I know I was saying to him, I said, man, you know, I want to be a producer, I want to write songs. They started to get together to write songs, and they had an instant chemistry. It was beautiful. It was a beautiful thing. It was easy. We wrote some songs together, and it, it just seemed like it flowed. Ever since then, it, it's been flowing. Gamble and Huff would go on to form Philadelphia International Records in 1971. As producers and songwriters, they had massive success with artists like the OJs, Billy Paul, The Three Degrees, and Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes. Philly International's artists defined the sound of Philadelphia. I'm John Morrison, and this is Final Me Please Anthology, the story of Philadelphia International Records. I grew up in Philly, in a neighborhood called West Oak Lane. Both of my parents are from North Philly. The music of Philadelphia International Records is the music of my childhood. I remember hanging out at my grandma's house in the summer, going to block parties, and falling asleep in the back seat of the car on the way home with the windows down as the sun was setting and the OJs playing on the radio. When I think about Gamble and Huff, I think about their songwriting and their catalog and how broad and deep it is. Listening to their music and absorbing its history has informed my work as a writer, radio host, and DJ. I think about what it took for Gamble and Huff to run a black-owned record label in the early 70s. They didn't have a lot of role models, but Kenny Gamble says they drew inspiration from Barry Gordy and his team at Motown Records in Detroit. They showed what could be done with a small group of people because they did something greater than just get hit records. They showed people how to to make it in the music industry because nobody was trying to help us. I don't know hardly anybody that was going to give us any information so that we could make a living off of uh, writing songs or whatever. We, we had to do it for ourselves. Gamble and Huff were more than just gifted songwriters. They had a natural talent for the business side of things. And as Leon Huff told us, they knew talent when they saw it. I always had to feel for great voices. Because, you know, I come up in a Baptist church playing the piano and some of the greatest voices in them choirs. And when I heard Eddie LeVert, Walter Williams, Walt came from a, a gospel background. Huff is talking about Walter Williams and Eddie LeVert from the OJs. They formed in 1958 and had some success. But 10 years later, they met Kenny Gamble and Leon Huff. Huff knew that the best was yet to come for the OJs. They are some powerful singers in them. That's what I thought. I thought we should collaborate. And collaborate they did. 
the OJ's album Backstabbers came out on Philly International in 1972. The title track was written by Leon Huff, Gene McFadden, and John Whitehead. Well, McFadden and Whitehead came down, and I was at the water fountain, and they had caught me and Mr. Huff, could you read this? They had a piece of paper with the lyrics, the words, Backstabbers, on it, but they didn't have no music or nothing. They just had the idea of the story. And Backstabbers to me was like, oh, this, this is interesting. So I took it home and me and Gamble looked at it. I brought it back in and, and we produced it. The song's message was dark. Somebody's out to get your lady. A few of your buddies, they sure look shady. The lyrics warned that your friends could be out to steal the woman that you care about. This sinister warning paired with the bright, catchy music that Gamble and Huff wrote created a perfect contrast. You know, I was six years old when Backstabbers came out. That's Mark Anthony Neal. He's the James B. Duke Professor of African American Studies at Duke University. It is as memorable to me, in the opening of the song in particular, it might be one of the four or five easily identifiable openings of any soul music that's been recorded. You hear that, duh, 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 and everybody knows, <laughs> you know, what's coming at that point in time. piano roll, that was like a spontaneous idea for me. Leon Huff. I played drums in high school, so I knew what a press roll was. So I did a press roll on the piano. Backstabbers like sounded like a mysterious thing to me. So with the with with that C major seven minor major seven chord, and that was like something different. I didn't know it would be that popular, but that press roll was really something different. That got that dum boom. What they do? And then the song just opens up. <laughs> it's like you just walked into a field of lilies and it's like all this sound and smell. And, and that was the production quality of Philadelphia International Records. It opened up the sound of Black music. We were teenagers then. <laughs> so, of course, I mean, backstabbers. And when that came out, that was the jam. This is Shirley Jones. She grew up in Detroit and along with her two sisters formed the vocal trio, the Jones Girls. They would eventually sign to Philadelphia International Records in 1979, but when Backstabbers came out seven years earlier in 1972. You know, I was just graduating from high school and that's, that's when I first started hearing about this, this label in Philadelphia, a label in Philadelphia. You know, because of course we knew that, you know, Motown, Detroit, growing up, it was the thing to go to the Fox Theater for the Motown Review. But to hear about this record, this up-and-coming label out of Philadelphia, that was kind of like my introduction to Philly International because of the, the OJs and uh, those lyrics, man, <laughs> even now. But I can only imagine what radio listeners heard when they first heard that song. It's just the sound of a new world. Again, here's Mark Anthony Neal. It breaks through. It didn't sugarcoat the story, right? Because this is about, yeah, we're lovely people. We're aspirational, but we got some backstabbers we need to look out for. The Backstabbers single was a hit. It reached number three on Billboard's Hot 100 chart, went to number one on the Hot Soul Singles chart, and proved that the combination of the OJs and Philly International was a recipe for success. 
but it was the second single from that OJ's album that really resonated with listeners. Love Train was written by Gamble and Huff and released as a single by the OJs just before Christmas in 1972. The song went to number one on the US pop chart. It seemed like the right song for the moment and according to Kenny Gamble, got to the heart of what Gamble and Huff were all about. Our message is love. There ain't nothing greater than love. Mark Anthony Neal says that this idea of love was always at the center of black political discourse and shouted back to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s message about loving your enemies. The idea that from a black political perspective that love can transcend everything, right? And, and that was part of what Gamble and Huff did. I, I mean, they packaged in the music and also in the liner notes, you know, really a kind of blueprint for black aspiration, right? And part of the aspiration was to have the capacity to love your enemy, your friends, your neighbors. And this music, more than anything, will generate a feeling of that love. Nineteen seventy-two was a big year for Philly International. In addition to the OJ's Backstabbers, they also released the first Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes album and Billy Paul's record, Three Hundred and Sixty Degrees of Billy Paul. The first track on side A is a Gamble and Huff song called Brown Baby. Kenny Gamble says that he and Leon Huff often drew writing inspiration from what was going on around them. 50 years later, Brown Baby is just as relevant as it was when they wrote it back in the early 70s. On that day, we was talking, man, I was talking about all of the names that have been applied to, to people of color, you know what I mean? They, they've had so many different kind of names when it's really, you know, a man is a man, uh, not a race, creed, or color. It's, you know, a person is, is a person. big hit from that album, the one that made Billy Paul a star, was the song Me and Mrs. Jones. Here's Mark Anthony Neal. I'm sure that when Me and Mrs. Jones broke through for Gamble and Huff and for Billy Paul, you know, they all were surprised that it resonated the way that it did. But of course, what is more timeless than illicit love? Me and Mrs. Jones We got a thing 
Like I said, Gamble and Huff often wrote about what was going on around them. Sometimes that meant observing what was happening in the cafe near the Philly International offices. The fantasy was the cafe that they were talking about, which was right across the street. And it was a soul food restaurant and bar. That's Shirley Jones again. Gamble and Huff used to go to the fantasy lounge after work, but they were kind of always working and gathering ideas for songs. So what about that illicit love? Huff and I, we seen that. We saw that. We used to go down and take a break or something. And then we see a, a young lady walk in and sit in the booth with a guy who's three times her age. And Huff would say, hey, man, I know that guy over there or whatever, you know. I knew that that man, that wasn't his wife. That's to me and Mrs. Jones. I said, oh, I know that guy, but I knew that wasn't his wife. So that's what created that me and Mrs. Jones uh, cheating on your thing. We gotta be extra careful That we don't build our hopes up too high Cause she's got her own obligations And so, and so Me and Mrs. Jones went to number one on Billboard's Hot 100 chart and earned Billy Paul the award for best R&B vocal performance at the 15th annual Grammy Awards. He beat out Ray Charles and Curtis Mayfield. You know, when you come out with a song like that, you know, that's topping the charts and, and all your peers are looking at, it. you know, Bill Withers is looking at this, Al Green is looking at this, Marvin Gaye is looking at this, like, okay, we might need to change up some stuff, right? <laughs> you know, because of, because of what Billy Paul just did. Now that Billy Paul and Philly International had everyone's attention, Mark Anthony Neal says that there were lots of songs that they could have released as the follow-up single to Me and Mrs. Jones. We're talking about an album that had Billy Paul covering Carol King's It's Too Late and Elton John's Your Song. But the song they chose to release as the second single was a Gamble and Huff tune called Am I Black Enough For You? least am I black enough for you in 1972? I, I mean, that would have been a risky endeavor in 82, 92, 2002, maybe even 2022. And you think about the main competition, you know, Motown and, and Stax, that, that was the blackest song that had ever been released, right? There's no way around that, right? It's like, you know, am I black enough for you? It's like, oh, okay. <laughs> There's not a black music producer collective or label that emerged in the post-1970s 
that didn't look to Philadelphia International Records and, and gamble and help particular as models. So whether you're talking about Jam and Lewis, L.A. Reid and Babyface, Teddy Riley, even on the hip hop side with Def Jam and Bad Boy <laughs> and labels like that. The model on how to do that effectively, you know, was Gamble and Huff. Man, to think that none of this would have happened if not for that chance encounter on an elevator more than 50 years ago. We'll get into more of the music that Philly International made in the 1970s on the next episode of Vinyl Me Please Anthology, the story of Philadelphia International Records. Coming up on episode two, you'll hear the story of Sigma Sound Studios, where the Philly International family hung out and put the sound of Philadelphia down on tape. And you'll hear more stories about how Kenny Gamble and Leon Huff turned ordinary moments from their lives into extraordinary songs. One day I'm walking past the office and me and Huff was getting ready to do some writing. And this girl walked up and I said, hey, how you doing? You know, she said, I'm doing good. I said, what are you doing down there? You know, just lollygagging. And then all of a sudden she said, well, when am I going to see you again? That was it. I said, oh, well, what a title. <laughs> That's next time on Vinyl Me Please Anthology, the story of Philadelphia International Records. This episode was written by John Myers with help from me, John Morrison. This season of Vinyl Me Please Anthology was produced by Alex Lewis and John Myers of Row Home Productions. The executive producer for Vinyl Me Please is Amelia Sutliff. Special thanks to the people at Sony Music and Philadelphia International Records. I'm John Morrison. Thanks for listening.